This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, congested with seasonal allergies. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. You never know what your voice sounds like coming out of your own head to other people, so I felt like I should just apologize immediately for sounding mildly congested, just a voice not fit for radio this week. But we power through. Um, There's a lot going on right now. New York Film Festival carries onward with some exciting world premieres. There are in-person events happening all over the place, which some of us have borne witness to. And I uh, I wanted to dive in on two specific categories that are uh, near and dear to my heart. Original song, as always, and the incredibly fascinating Best Director category this year, I think. Um, But I wanted to start going back to the New York Film Festival with She Said, which is uh, one of the festival's few really huge world premieres. And Rebecca, you got to see this movie a long time ago. We've been playing planning on doing this first look reveal for it. It's finally up. You can finally tell the world about She Said. Uh, what did you learn talking to all the major players about this movie? The main thing I wanted to ask them about is, in the book, there's nothing about Jodie Cantor or M- Megan Toohey's personal life. And the film actually goes pretty deep into that. And I thought that was pretty fascinating because obviously they're journalists and aren't used to sharing about their lives. And so I talked to both Megan and Jody about that, who seem to still be getting used to the fact that they're sort of the center of attention instead of the ones writing the story. And also Carrie Mulligan and uh, Zoe Kazan, who play them. And they all were really willing to sort of share personal details about their own um, struggles as working moms. And I thought that was really interesting to hear. You know, Megan had some postpartum depression uh, because she'd just had a child right before this investigation. And she they she really decided that she wanted that to be a part of the story. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I think it makes the film feel a lot bigger than it would have if it had just been the investigation, though that part of the film is done really, really well. Yeah, because it's not like there's a lack of like personal stories and details in the She Said book, which we talked about this summer and I read. Um, you know, the stories of what happened to the women who were for Harvey Weinstein are fascinating, but it sounds like the personal aspect of it kind of makes your investment in the investigation a little bit stronger, maybe. Totally, yeah. They feel, you know, they, these characters on screen feel like whole people who are juggling a lot and, and dealing with many, many things. So it, it definitely made it feel more authentic. And, and it's funny because all four of them just kept saying like, this isn't about me. Like, this is about a a story much bigger than me. And I'm like, I know, I know, but I want to hear about you. So they're all just trying to sort of balance, um, you know, that aspect of the story. Richard, you've been at the New York Film Festival a lot. Do you feel like this is the the right audience to, you know, this is one of the latest festival debuts we've had this season. Is this the right crowd for it? I think so. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I'm seeing it later this week when the press screening is. 
And I'm very, very eager to see it. I rewatched Spotlight recently just to kind of like prime the pump for mm. <laughs> that kind of movie. How's it hold um, up? It's good. I mean, it's a little more melodramatic at times than I remembered, mm-hmm. but it's still such a pleasure to watch. Um, but yeah, I think she said is is kind of ideal. You know, obviously there's the New York connection, both with the New York Times being the ones that broke the story, but also on the grimmer side, like Harvey Weinstein was a very New York kind of figure in the in Hollywood, weirdly. So I think, yeah, people will be kind of th- that mix of like rousing entertainment, one would assume, and also serious thought. Uh, I think that's a good mix. I mean, you know, obviously something like Tar is also a, a perfect fit for like the Lincoln Square area, you know, given <laughs> what it's about. But I think, yeah, I think she said like if that had that movie premiered at Telluride, where it had to contend with, other, you know, a lot of other big movies, or Toronto, which was so filled, I think that movie could have sort of gotten lost in the shuffle, whereas being a big world premiere at New York Film Festival, um, that that gives it much more of a stage, I think. Well, sticking with the New York Film Festival, um, The Inspection is also going to be uh, making its closing, it's going to be the closing uh, night film at the festival coming up. And David, you uh, ran your interview with Effie Brown, a producer on the movie, uh, which you did at Toronto kind of right after it had this big, um, well-received premiere. I think it'll be really interesting to see how The Inspection plays at New York Film Festival. I think it might have been what you were just talking about, Richard, something that got a little overshadowed by everything that came after it at Toronto. Um, But David, I think anyone who reads your interview with Effie Brown is going to be more interested to see it because she is just so frank about not just what it took to make this movie, but get to where she is at this point in her career. Yeah, she is she, of producers in Hollywood. I don't think anyone talks about what she calls the art of producing better than she does. Just incredibly frank and candid um, and really fascinating, <laughs> you know, understanding the exact position of an independent film producer right now, which is kind of terrifying. I found that incredibly illuminating and also just made me have a whole new level of respect for her. She, of course, became known pretty much against her will because of the Project Greenlight reboot in which she clashed with the likes of Peter Farrelly and Matt Damon on camera. And um, after that, she really struggled to find work because she was labeled as difficult, which is something that happens to particularly a lot of Black women in Hollywood. And this movie, which she was very open about, represents her comeback. And it's it's a movie she helped usher from the very beginning with the director, Elegance Bratton, and A24 got on board early as well. And and it's, it's a movie that I think reflects her unique strengths as a producer and the kinds of movies she has worked really hard to elevate. She was the producer of Real Women Have Curves, Dear White People, um, a number of independent movies that really did contribute to the cultural conversation in a pretty lasting way. Yeah, it feels like in the Oscar race, we have like everything everywhere all at once is kind of the the quintessential scrappy indie that's out there because it was such a huge box office hit. But I feel like there's more lanes for something like The Inspection to come through. Something that's really personal, a real labor of love, maybe like a little less glossy than like Tar, which is an indie, <laughs> but, you know, a, a little bit fancier. It, it, I, it seems to me that The Inspection's story isn't really done yet. And the New York Film Festival could tell us a lot about how it will play through the rest of the season. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think... There are a few obvious areas where you hope the film can find some traction, like Best Actor is, by all accounts, pretty thin this year relative to previous years, and Jeremy Pope absolutely deserves to be in that conversation. He's really excellent in the movie. He's pretty quickly made a name for himself in the industry with Tony nominations. He was Emmy-nominated for Hollywood. Gabriel Union is so terrific as his mother in a small but really pivotal role. 
Yeah, it's it's a very affecting story. And I think closing New York is a, a big test for its longevity in the awards race. It'll hit theaters in November before Thanksgiving. But it, you know, pushed the right way. I, I could definitely see it finding some finding enough fans to have a have a life this season. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the supporting actress being a, a Wild West and that Michelle Williams is out. So you never know. Make it more wild. <laughs> Do we feel there's any possibility that A24 is stretched a little more thinly than they have been in years past? You know, mm. but between that and everything everywhere and the whale. Yeah. Um, that feels like a, a big, a big. I mean. Thing to deal with, I guess. From, from what I've, you know, from some conversations I've had, I, not to say they've been open about being stretched thin, but I think there's an awareness internally that they're dealing with more than they usually deal with. And um, with that comes different strategies and a lot more to juggle. Obviously, in addition to The Whale and The Inspection pretty aggressively hitting the fall circuit, you've had movies like After Sun play really mm, well. Yeah. I remember in Telluride, you know, that movie was a special screening there. I spoke with someone from A24 who who mentioned the sort of passionate effort to to get that movie out of Cannes because it is a smaller movie. But the fact that it has had such an incredible reception um, at North American festivals would indicate that maybe it too can have a kind of life. And everything everywhere has, you know, Michelle Yeoh has been heading from festival to festival and they've been, you know, doing some Q&As. So it's, it's a lot for them, but it does feel like they have talent willing to really get out there for their movies, which is usually the biggest hurdle. And they have, I think, a really interesting slate of contenders that appeal to different kinds of Academy members and voters and uh, corners of the industry. I mean, the one thing we know about A24 is that they are really, really strong in the marketing of their films. Um, yeah. They come up with really creative campaigns. I think when it comes to awards, it's a little less clear what their strategy is but i just feel like because everything everywhere all at once was their biggest box office hit ever right and also just such a success across the board it just feels like they're going to put everything they can into that one and yeah i do wonder how they spread it out among the rest of theirs because they don't you know from what we know they don't they don't spend the budget of like a netflix on their awards campaign so no one I does think, I, no one does <laughs> no one does but you know they, they're they're a smaller company that i think really focuses on the films they make so i'm curious to see how they're able to do that because it, it is definitely a, a heavy slate to carry this year yeah, going. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, and in the, the COVID year, they were really able to go all in on Minari, um, which was a, a more Academy-friendly movie than, like, Uncut Gems. Um, but also, because of the pandemic, they just had fewer films to focus on. And then last year, they had uh, Come On, Come On, The Humans, Red Rocket, uh, Tragedy Macbeth, like, movies that, soon your part two, movies we were all kind of fans of, but none of which really got the traction with the Academy you might have wanted them to. So I wonder if that taught them anything about how they spread their attention and how they might reverse course on that because I don't think they release everything everywhere all at once thinking that a huge Oscar campaign was in their future they might have right. hoped it but how right. could you plan for something like that totally well they certainly have adapted um, or, or at least the, the the everything everywhere crew has I did a, a Q&A on stage with um, some of the people the Daniels Jamie Lee Curtis Stephanie Hsu uh, Kiwi Kwan uh, and a producer on the film Jonathan Wong on Sunday and they 
I was telling you guys before we recorded, they kind of struck me as the Coda crew, you know, because I think one of that film's strengths was that they were always this cohesive, we all bonded, we're so like in love with each other kind of energy. And and that really obviously worked for Coda uh, to quite to quite an effect. Um, and that was kind of the vibe I got from the Everything Everywhere people uh, on Sunday was that like, you know, it was kind of the easiest gig I've ever done because I all I had to do is ask like four questions and they just <laughs> talked to each other for 30 minutes, um, which was, I mean, and the audience, it was a SAG audience. They were eating it up. Lots of applause. Uh, Kiwi Kwan, like, like Jamie Lee Curtis was like, he tell everyone the story about you getting back into acting, you know, after decades of working behind the camera, you know, because he famously was in Indiana Jones as a kid and and that story was really sweet. And Stephanie Shu was like, gave him an extra bit of like, you know, praise. And every, it just felt like very, like a love fest, um, but not in a cloying way. And the Daniel spoke really eloquently about the origins of the film and how the, you know, and the making of it. And um, I don't know, they, it just, that, that is a formidable group of people who are very invested in the film that they're campaigning for. Hmm. That's, That's a real, so I love, interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, we're talking over each other to say the same thing. Because I'm thinking about the power of a group. And I think, Rebecca, you're the one who kept drawing the parallel between Coda and Parasite, where they would all walk into a room together and the entire energy of the room would turn toward them. Like, that's a really powerful thing in when campaigns get into swing. Totally, yeah. I think every the last few years, I feel like there's been one film where they do that really well. And and I'm not saying it's only strategic uh, that that happens, <laughs> but, you know, for uh, awards experts who are paying attention, I feel like if you can get your group to really feel like they're that cohesive and really like change the energy in a room like that, it, it's worth pushing them all out there at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that they're all movies that didn't necessarily come into the race uh, hmm. or, or just released with any kind of awards expectations. You know, Parasite, premiered in Cannes. It was not a Hollywood movie at all. Coda was COVID Sundance premiere um, that was then released on Apple in the summer. And Everything Everywhere, like you were just saying, Katie, was released in the spring. and, and was South by, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And was not, I would say, thought to have this kind of strength at this point in the season. Um, and I think that does speak to the fact that it is a maybe more authentic kind of cast bonding that the industry gets to see and fall in love with because, yeah, to Rebecca's point, that is a huge part of a modern Best Picture Oscar campaign. You know, between Parasite and Coda was Nomadland, but that was very much a COVID year. Nobody was doing anything in person. So the last two campaigns like that have been for movies that found that on-the-ground embrace. Yeah. Well, I do have, I can't help but think of what you said about women talking at Telluride, David, and that group yeah. of women traveling together as a pack. And they've been in New York. The, that had its New York Film Festival premiere this week. So, you know, they, they might be uh, following that same tactic through the season. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 
Well, speaking of in-person events, um, David, you did a Q&A for TAR uh, on its opening weekend. It opened just in New York and L.A. Um, there's an interesting deadline article about how the like really classic like four-theater platform release has not come back that well post-COVID. Um, and it really kind of mimicked a pre-COVID release where it makes like a... I think it was like a $40,000 per location average, like really huge haul from a tiny amount of theaters. Um, so what was catching up with Kate Blanchett uh, as this was all taking off? What was that like? Uh, a dream. <laughs> no, but um, it was funny because uh, it was at the Century City AMC in Los Angeles, and I got there a little early, and I was with Todd Fields, who actually couldn't ultimately join the Q&A because he was not feeling well. But um, there is this enormous tar marquee outside of Century City, which is a big AMC. Now, in LA, a number of art house theaters have closed. And so you have a situation where a small movie about a classical music conductor like Tar can get this enormous showcase at a big AMC. And he was just taking selfies with it and completely overwhelmed seeing it. He's truly never had that in his career as a director, having a movie have that kind of visual debut. Um, and it definitely carried over. The screening was full. It was a public screening. Kate did the Q&A with me one-on-one. And she's been getting out there for this movie a whole lot. The Q&A was wrapping up, and she decided to then throw some questions to the audience about the ending, which Ooh. is not typical for uh, an actor. And I, I would usually... love to have a tar spoiler section in here, which she wanted to hear from the audience, because I've been thinking a lot about that <laughs> Well, ending. I have to be careful. But, uh, <laughs> well, it was, my, it was my question to her, and it kind of just – just kind of went off to, you know, I want to know what, what you guys think, and she starts calling on people, and I'm like – you know, normally, once the audience <laughs> questions start, they are either gone or checked out. And that yeah. was the opposite. So I think it's a movie she really loves and believes in and loves talking about. She's really engaged with it. And I think that will be true for the next few months, um, which also helps an Oscar campaign. But yeah, there's there's a lot of energy for the movie, from what I could tell, both just among the public, which was pretty exciting, and certainly among Kate and Todd. I loved being in New York and seeing the tar ads, like, on the, the subway ad billboards, like, into the subway entrances there were a lot of. Um, and it's just such, like, it's not the, like, four-quadrant blockbuster ad campaign movie. But in New York, you know, it was really treated that way, which makes perfect sense. And um, I think it'll be expanding to 10 more cities uh, next week. So we'll see how other cities jump on board the tar train. I don't know if it's just that the talent has gotten better at faking it or they genuinely <laughs> are, but, like... Everyone seems really invested in their movies this year. Mm. Like, Kate Blanchett is, like, so, like clearly the biggest Tar fan, you know? And, <laughs> no, totally. Um, and obviously the Everything Everywhere. Paul Mescal has been, like, everywhere for After Sun um, and seemingly not bored of it. You know, even though he's, like, a young guy who could be doing whatever, you know, whatever else with his evening. I went to a Banshees of Inisherin event and recently, and, like... Colin Farrell was just, like, not in the little VIP area. He was just, like, with the crowd, sitting down, having a rap session about the movie. Like, I overheard him saying it's manna from heaven. Like, how amazing the script. <laughs> you know, like, like, like. so he's really invested. Brendan Gleeson was there. Like, it, it just it feels like everyone is just ready for their little passion project thing to get that kind of attention because they believe in it. And that's an exciting energy to be around. I'm sure there is one of the other contenders and some of the actors are like, oh, God, this thing. But, like, I haven't felt that yet. Yeah, Woman King's another one. Yeah. Yeah, Woman King, Women Talking. Like, there's just so much stuff that, like, people really seem to be like, I finally, we finally got this across the finish line. We're so proud of it. We're not going to be, you know, sort of mock um, humble about the this award season. We're like, we're going all in. 
I don't want to be a cynic because I'm not usually a cynic on this <laughs> podcast, but it's also very early in the season. Richard. I just feel like let's check in in a month and see who's still on the campaign. See trail. how they're doing at the Golden Globes. Yeah. Are you saying Colin Farrell won't have a rap session with me around <laughs> early December? <laughs> Depends on the New York Film Critics Circle decisions. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once they start losing some stuff, let's see what happens. <laughs> the Banshees inter- uh, energy, though, it came off on SNL. Um, you know, I only watched Brendan Gleeson's monologue, basically, but Colin Farrell made a, you know, quote-unquote surprise a cameo in it. And they're just so fun to watch together. And I, I saw Banshees last week, and so like, the dynamic of the movie kind of carries over into that IRL yeah. performance, even though they clearly like each other. I just... I can I like the idea of the Brendan and Colin show just carrying on for months and months. Expect it will. Uh, well, Richard, you said there were other people at that Banshees event too, uh, not connected with the movie. Who mm. you maybe are having so much fun they can't help working the room too. Yeah, they let in a, a competitor in Judd Hirsch from the Fablemans. He was there, and I talked to him briefly, and he was very. Again, effusive about Tony Kushner's writing, Steven Spielberg's direction. He was just, he, I mean, he, you know, he's only in the movie for a couple scenes, but they're very impactful scenes. And I was just some stranger who introduced himself and he was just like right in it, ready to talk about it. Like, um, so that was fun. And then mingling in the crowd in a very like non showy, look at me way at all, just like you could have walked by or not noticed. Uh, unless someone elbowed you and said, that's Taylor Swift, which is what happened with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Taylor Swift was there talking mostly to kind of what looked to be older, potentially Academy types, I don't know. And it reminded me that she is on the campaign as well for her her short film, which is, you know, depending on who you ask, kind of just a music video, but maybe <laughs> not. Um, and obviously her song from Where the Crawdads Sings. So uh, it was interesting to see her in a sort of more low-key I'm just part of this whole season kind of thing where it was not at all a party about Taylor Swift. It was, you know, she was just happened to be there to mingle, which um, was interesting to see. Well, Richard, you remind me um, that Taylor Swift is not just in the hunt for her uh, short film All Too Well, where she would be nominated as a director, but in Best Original Song again, um, which is an area she has been, she's been in contention for a few times and never been nominated. And I think it makes us all wonder if the Academy's like, yeah, you're a global pop star. You don't need an Oscar on top of it. But she's got her song from Where the Crawdads Sing, which I haven't seen. Richard, I don't know if you're the only one of us who has seen it. Um, but that movie's a reasonable box office hit. And as I was going through the competition for the original song category, which is fascinating as always, it made me wonder if um, if we're underestimating her competition there, too. I think one potential fly in its ointment, let's say, is that it's kind of a downbeat song, you know? Mm. Like, it's sort of simple, folksy, kind of pensive, you know? And you compare it, you put that next to Lady Gaga flying into the fucking stratosphere. (laughs) And it's just like, I don't know if there's really like any comparison there in terms of like bombast and like big cinematic feeling. Um, But, you know, small songs have won in the past. It's rarer, but like, I don't know. I mean, you kind of think like, okay, this is fine, Taylor, but like you need, you just need to do the Bond song or something, you know, Um, which would be interesting. Uh, So I don't know. I weirdly, I feel like her better shot is in the short category rather than the original song because there's Gaga just kind of, I think, you know, sitting there perhaps waiting to win. Yeah, I think uh, any look at this category, you kind of see her just like astride it like a colossus. You know, Top Gun 
as an overall competitor, I think we go back and forth on how strong it's going to be in things like Best Picture or Beyond the Crafts. But, you know, Gaga already has an Oscar and she's jumping in this exact category and she's jumping right into it. But also, I think we forget she's going directly up against the reigning Best Original Song champions, Billie Eilish and Phineas, who wrote the, the incredible song from Turning Red. Do you guys remember the boy band song yes. that's like central yes. to the Excellent. plot of Turning Red? It's such a good song. Uh, having seen White Noise and speaking yes. of songs that prominently figure into you know the best parts of a movie which is pretty rare for this category the the end credits of white noise are are quite pivotal i think to the experience of the movie and uh james murphy lcd sound system has a song that plays over the really terrific final sequence that i think really makes it and it's the perfect example of a movie where you're going to sit through the end credit song because the credits are interesting and it kind of leaves you on a high. So I, I feel like that will have pretty good traction here, even if the movie doesn't otherwise. And is a usage of a best original song contender that is distinct from some, you know, yeah. like like the 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 Billie Eilish, the, the seeing red, turning red stuff, like that is diegetic to the movie. But like this is sort of half there. And then Taylor Swift is, is kind of an end credit song and Gaga's is, used toward the end of the movie. Like, I think that all of these songs are being employed in different ways, which makes it sort of an exciting race compared to some years. Totally. Yeah, the one that I'm really intrigued by is a movie that's also on Netflix, but not a Netflix movie, is RRR, which we talked about in terms mm. of the international features race because it wasn't India's submission. But its distributor, Variance Films, has, um, you know, at least I saw Jen Yamato on Twitter tweet a, like, full FYC slate for that movie, um, including Natu Natu, which if you haven't seen RRR, like like I haven't, you've probably seen the gif of the two guys dancing and, like, incredible sync. It's like um, like Moses Supposes from Singing in the Rain, like really incredible dancing. And this, the whole sequence, it goes with it you can watch it on YouTube is a blast I mean I it's hard for me to tell how widespread the love for RRR is I feel like a lot of really smart film people I know have seen it but I don't know what it is beyond that but I think if people watch the sequence they would vote for it which I guess is always the question in this category well the reason I insisted on us talking about this is because I saw Lyle Lyle Crocodile over the weekend. Um, Richard, I believe you had a celebrity sighting of Lyle uh, out on the campaign trail this weekend, too. But um, he's not the one who wrote the song, so we don't have to worry about him, right? No, yeah, he was a mess at this party. It was really (laughs) sad to see, actually. Um, Famous tough. Yeah. Um, But, so Shawn Mendes is the voice of Lyle, but actually it has original songs from um, Pesek and Paul, the uh, impresarios behind Dear Evan Hansen and also La La Land. And this, the songs are just really great. They've been stuck in my head for days uh, because my children insist on listening to them as well. And I, like, it was a box office, like, it was kind of soft. Like, I don't know if it's going to be some kind of runaway hit. But I feel like Pesek and Paul are pretty formidable. So if you get the chance to see Javier Bardem dancing on stage at the Oscars with someone in a crocodile suit, I think you should take it, would be my recommendation to the Academy. But is he really going to do that again? I mean, I feel like that's so played out at this point. With I know. Him. It's 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 open like the last five Oscars, right? Yeah. And then one last thing I did want to flag is that there is a song. There's a couple of original songs from Wakanda Forever. We don't know the extent of them. You know, the um, soundtrack for Black Panther was huge hit. And then Kendrick Lamar got an Oscar nomination for all the stars from Black Panther. So there is a song called A Body, A Coffin by an artist named Amari. Uh, that you can listen to now. It's good. It kind of reminds me of all the stars and kind of the energy of it. Um, so I don't even know if that's the one to sing a lot from this, but I would imagine we'll see what kind of forever in the hunt there too. Do any of you guys feel like you have a strong rooted interest in anyone at this point? Well, I do want to flag that I assume 
Diane Warren will be back in this race for a movie. You what never is the movie? Know. Yes, I don't what know. is the movie? <laughs> I haven't figured it out, there's but some there's movie probably something. Tell It Like a Woman that apparently came out or is come, it's an it like last year there's a movie that no one has seen that i think she wrote a song for and the branch will nominate her you, yeah uh, you. <laughs> even though I she's just, getting her honorary oscar this year which can only boost her chances i feel like of yeah. getting i mean it, there hasn't been a year where she hasn't been nominated in recent history so let's just i mean maybe she doesn't even have to have a song it'll just say her name and people will <laughs> put a check mark next to it it's not called Tell It Like a Woman Rook. It's called Women Talking. Uh, <laughs> you saw it at Telluride. Um, I don't know much about this film, but I feel like maybe that's... The, I see announcements that she wrote an original song for it. So if it's on the ballot, don't be surprised. <laughs> so this is your rooting interest, Rebecca, for <laughs> Diane Warren to maintain her streak. Yes. At this point, are they making movies to house <laughs> Diane Warren-nominated songs? It's not uh, the worst strategy. How does she choose the movie? Because it is true that it's increasingly unheard of titles and she just happens to be on them and she happens to be nominated for them yeah oh so this movie is kind of i think like an anthology kind of thing with various directors including katherine hardwick and taraji p henson sure marcia gay harden cara delavine eva longoria paletta washington is in it (laughs) jennifer hudson's in it um all right well that sounds that that fits the bill. <laughs> that's, like a le, that's a that's a legit movie, you know. She yeah, could, she could get in for that. That's interesting. I I'm reluctant to talk about Bros anymore on this podcast. I was also going to reluctantly bring up Bros, so I'm glad you did. It's a really special, I think, original song for this kind of movie, and it's very tied in with the big gesture which is intrinsic to this movie's rom-com DNA. And it's really well-written and funny. And so I hope that somehow stays in the conversation. Yeah, this category is, is always going to break your heart at some point. And I, I fear that bros will be the one. But you never know. They might break my heart in a new surprising way instead. I guess Brendan Gleeson technically does have an original song in Banshee's Vanishern. I believe he does. <laughs> Those songs are a blast, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't uh, know. yeah that's my, my favorite Oscar stat for I think four years running it was that people for the first Mary J. Blige was the first person to be nominated for song and acting in the same year and then like three more people followed in her footsteps after that yeah. um, and we broke the streak last year but it's never too late to, to come back it was Gaga and then Joaquin Phoenix for Joker right yes yeah obviously yes. He, he, he actually wrote that um, the Gary Glitter song that he danced <laughs> down the steps to a little <laughs> right, in fact right. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. All right, well, let's wrap things up by talking about Best Director, which I just keep turning over my head 
the category in my head because I can't figure out what I think is going to happen here. Um, we've talked ad nauseum about the Fablemans. We won't be done talking about the Fablemans for a while, I don't think. But I think, you know, we're all looking at Steven Spielberg and saying, is this the year that he gets a highly, highly deserved second Best Director Oscar? Um, to the point that when I was talking about Killers of the Flower Moon not coming out this year, I was like, what if Scorsese was just like, I'm not going to get in his way? Like, they seem collegial. Like, I, it's not impossible for me to imagine. Um, but David, do you want to just run down, like, is Steven Spielberg at the top in your imagination, and then who's coming in after him? He he is. And to an extent, this conversation revolves around who you think are the overall frontrunners right now, as director tends to tends to run. Of course, Sean Hader was not nominated for CODA last year, and it, it can happen, but it's it's usually the top five or so best picture contenders, um, with some with a with a drive my car thrown in maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this year, Spielberg feels like he's at the top. I think if you're thinking about where the director's branch tends to lean, Todd Field feels very strong for Tar because it is an arty movie that will be a strong player. And it's it's a very complete uh, and, I think, demanding vision that they will embrace. It feels likely to me that Martin McDonough will finally get his first Best Director nomination for Banshees, just given how strong it is overall. Isn't it weird that he's never been nominated for Best Director? So insane. Well, that was that was really one of the big signs that Three Billboards wasn't the front runner that yeah. year, because Guillermo del Toro was winning was definitely winning Director for Shape of Water, regardless. And when McDonough couldn't even crack that five, it was it was a warning sign for that movie, um, which bared out. Um, and, then, and then Sarah Pauly's one. I'm and this is. This gets to your point about this category being weird. On the one hand, that movie feels like one where it could do very well, like a coda, or, you know, this movie's not Green Book, but like a Green Book, <laughs> you know, the Academy really embraces, but that the director's branch just does not go for. It mm-hmm. is mostly a single setting. You know, they really love The Father, for example. That was not nominated for directing, despite, I think, being really, you know, having really innovative filmmaking and interesting aesthetic choices. This movie has been hit for its cinematography, so she might face a bit of an uphill climb despite the movie being a really strong overall contender. My instinct is that she will end up cracking the five anyway because I think it's a really strong vision and it's it's a big moment for her, and I think that, that could carry her through. And then it just depends on who you think the fifth is. We haven't seen Babylon. Gina Prince-Bythewood for Woman King is interesting, and there's lots of international auteurs that you cannot forget about, of course. Yeah, I was going to ask if we think Ruben Osland with Triangle of Sadness is in that pole position. If we assume that there's going to be a drive my car every year in the Best Director category, is he the one? Feels like a good bet. But he, also, when the movie came out, Triangle of Sadness, it did get some pretty high-profile negative reviews. Um, yes. Like, the New York Times, A.O. Scott, like, really took it to task, you know? And <laughs> that was interesting to see, given that, like, that movie had pretty much enjoyed... It was mostly positive in Cannes. It obviously won the big prize there. It's been kind of riding high-ish, and now it feels a little bit lower. I don't know that that really matters to the director's branch or whatever, but like, I think that movie's profile all of a sudden feels a little more dinged up than than I thought it would. I think the weird one about that movie is it's it's more of an audience favorite, which is not where the director's branch leans right. typically. Mm, mm-hmm. So that that's its challenge because uh, it did quite well in a, in a limited release over the weekend, which was nice to see along with Tar. I think Park Chan Wook is definitely in that conversation for decision to leave. Uh, he is in that category, maybe of a Thomas Vinterberg or a Paul Pawlikowski, who's long respected director by you know. 
the branch, um, who just hasn't found his way into that kind of more mainstream Academy recognition. But this movie seems to be finding a lot of love, and it's it's a really entertaining and interesting movie, but with a lot of style. So I, I could see him finding a lot of support. Um, well, we haven't talked about Enyoritu, uh, a two-time Best Director winner who has the uh, Mexico submission for international feature, and Bardo, also obviously a big Netflix player. Um, it seems pretty foolish to roll him out. And I do hope the Daniels remain a part of the conversation for everything, everywhere, all at once. I I was looking back and realized, like, director pairs being nominated is very <laughs> unusual. You have the Coen brothers, but other than that, it, it just doesn't seem to happen. And even thinking about it is weird. I think that, like, I feel like I remember the Coens, like, being credited just for Joel for a long time because, like, the DGA was weird about it. Um, and I don't know if they, like, broke through and made it more possible, but I, I think there's they some did weirdness change it to eventually. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think for Oscar, they can, they can be na- nominated as a pair. And they do have the name, the Daniels, which I feel like will make it less confusing <laughs> for people. But, like, the, the Coens, Coens, the Daniels. But, um, but, yeah, it's just so rare. I think that actually creates a more difficult climb for them. I also think that the movie having a more commercial appeal could hurt it in this category. As we saw with Denis Villeneuve last year, they can be weirdly punishing of populist choices. How dare your movie be liked by everyone? (laughs) (laughs) To see that movie, you're like, how the hell did any of this get put together? You know, it's so intricate. And, you know, the producer, Jonathan Wong, was talked about like how, yeah, it was. It was a lot of moving plates to keep spinning and they had very little budget. Jamie Lee Curtis explained like how the location where the movie was filmed and how they kept, you know, switching out sets, but they were, it was the same space, but they would just redress it, you know, to fit a different scene. And like, it felt, you know, it sounded like it was this scrappy accomplishment that then went on to get, you know, to make all this money. Uh, And that, you know, I guess you could see that from a directing perspective and be like, wow, they pulled it off. But that to me feels more like a producing, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of effort, which is why, like, I feel like everything everywhere feels at this point, kind of a lock for best picture. If they keep talking about it, to the right audiences this way, like in a, with humility, but also like, yeah, it was kind of, we pulled off something big. Um, but yeah, maybe the director thing is too specific, um, whereas the whole production itself is the thing that might people will want to award. One well, on the the commercial side of things too, I keep wondering about Ryan Coogler and Wakanda Forever. Um, you know, he famously turned down the chance to be in the Academy, but he still seems like someone who Academy members and maybe especially the director's branch would want to embrace and, and count as one of their own. So if that movie hits big, you know, I think maybe even more so than with the first one, which was such a surprise phenomenon in some ways, uh, he might he might find his way in there. He's someone who just hasn't missed. He makes great movies over and over again, no matter, you know, whether he's being underestimated or making a really small indie. So he will at some point feel overdue for a directing nomination. And speaking of blockbusters, there's also a young man named James Cameron. Mm, My personal friend. Back in this race. It's, It's hard to see those guys defining it because just of where the branch has gone the last few years, but also those movies feel like undeniable question marks and in a way that they could shake up everything, uh, including this category. Well, one more big movie I wanted to ask about was Baz Luhrmann and Elvis. You know, he had this huge Oscar hit with Moulin Rouge, but didn't get a Best Director nomination. So, you know, I think Elvis is an uphill climb as being earlier in the year, but it's such a directorial vision. Like if we're talking about these guys being snobs, then maybe that's the way the way that they go, honoring someone who's kind of an undeniable auteur at this point. I recapped that ceremony, the Moulin Rouge ceremony that um, Baz Luhrmann didn't get nominated in. And I think it was Whoopi Goldberg 
as the host who said, uh, Moulin Rouge does this, does this, does this, and apparently all without a director. <laughs> and the audience kind of like clapped, jeered, like laughed kind of thing. And so it was a scandal then. <laughs> um, and yeah, Elvis is kind of that like other summer hit that like people do talk about, but it, it doesn't quite, I mean, it's it didn't make the money that Maverick did, but like, you know, that was a big movie. And I think also I keep forgetting to factor Austin Butler into these conversations. So yeah, yeah we shouldn't count Elvis out. Yeah. I would be shocked if he was nominated here, but that is my personal opinion. Weird things happen. Um, you never know. Weird things happen. But thinking about um, the conversations around this category over the last few years, the fact that it is always, it always becomes a thing when there is a risk of a woman not being nominated. And I think uh-huh. Sarah Polly is the obviously likeliest person to be nominated there. But, you know, you have to also pay attention to that kind of conversation and who could pop up as especially someone like Gina who has helmed a box office hit that critics embrace that is a real vision and someone who is very has been a force in the industry for a long time and an underestimated one at that so those kinds of narratives can also take a kind of hold uh, well to circle back to where we started do you see anyone with a clear path to winning acknowledging that we don't know anything and anything could change other than Steven Spielberg who's gonna challenge him here Nobody. That's it. We're done, guys. Let's just call it a day. You know, if there's another movie that emerges as a Best Picture frontrunner and the director is a strong part of that nominations grouping, then you'd have to consider them a challenger. But until that point, that happens, yeah, I don't see anybody. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. Find us on Twitter at HWD or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best preview of what Little Gold Men's overall energy is going to be around mid-February goes to Richard Lawson. We're so, like, in love with each other kind of energy. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.